This is 1A. I'm Jen White in Washington. When you think of the Middle Ages, chances are you think of something like this. And tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Or this. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. Or even this. Let us ride to Camelot. We're knights of the round table. We dance where we're able. We do routines and all the scenes. We footwork in bed cable. We dine well here in Camelot. We the Middle Ages spanned roughly a thousand years and encompassed all seven continents. But when most Americans consider medieval times, not the restaurant, our brains go straight to an all-white version of medieval Europe that never really existed. The myth is so pernicious, white supremacists have used it to draw people to their cause for more than a hundred years. Last month, it was even alluded to in a memo calling on Republicans to form a caucus driven by, quote, Anglo-Saxon political traditions. So while we still hear a lot about the Vikings, the Celts, and Anglo-Saxon politics, what were those groups really like? And what does our misunderstanding of the Middle Ages mean for how we view our world today? Matthew Gabriel is a professor of medieval studies and the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech. His upcoming book is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. Matthew, welcome. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Also with us, Cord Whitaker, an associate professor of English at Wellesley College. He's also the author of Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. He's also a senior consultant on anti-racism strategy at the consulting firm Sagely. Cord, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It's absolutely great to be here. And Eleanor Yanega, a guest teacher in women's study at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's also the host of the TV series Going Medieval and author of the upcoming book, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. Eleanor, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Okay, I want to do a bit of a roundtable here. Matthew, starting with you, what's one of the biggest misconceptions you encounter when it comes to the Middle Ages? Oh, uh, well, where to start, right? Um, so I think the biggest thing that, that we oftentimes confront as, as scholars of the period is this, this idea of the Dark Ages, um, which just lives on kind of zombie-like um, for, and has lived on zombie-like for kind of several hundred years. The idea that all learning after antiquity, after ancient Rome, just kind of stopped, that people were backwards, that they were dirty, they lived in mud huts, they didn't bathe. Um, that they were in the thrall of superstition and stuff like that. Um, and that's, that's really absolutely not true. I mean, there's, there's plenty of scholarship and, and lots of um, evidence from the period, both material culture and written records that show this was a vibrant time, that these people were humans. I mean, they were complex, they did terrible things, but they did really amazing things as well. Eleanor, what about you? Oh, unfortunately, I have to agree with Matt there. <laughs> so the, the biggest thing that we, we generally tend to face is this idea almost that the Middle Ages is something that you can forget about as a result of all of those common misconceptions. So because they are, in theory, ignorant, it's a backward time, we can just sort of skip it. So the way that our relationship to the Middle Ages works is that it's there was Rome, everything was wonderful, Rome fell, something, 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 Magna Carta, the Renaissance, everything got good again. Um, so it's not just that those ideas are really permission pernicious and ongoing, it's that as a result, you can just kind of fast forward the time period 
period completely. And then as a result, you end up having groups of people make it into anything they want it to be. And Cord, for you? Sure. So I'm absolutely on board with everything that um, that both Matt and Eleanor have said so far. But in addition to those, one of the major problems that we run into is that people perceive the Middle Ages as homogeneously white. Um, people think of it as only occurring in Europe and only involving the people who they consider, who they believe to be native to Europe. This is not what the Middle Ages looked like. Um, people traveled then, <laughs> just like people travel now. Um, we have lots of great scholarship coming out in recent years, uh, including from, from scholars in fields such as bioarchaeology, showing that especially Northern Europe's port cities were in fact quite diverse. You had people um, you know, from the Middle East and Africa living in these cities, um, and, and through DNA analysis, we can tell that, sure, some of them were newcomers, and some of them, their families had been there for generations. Matthew, when we talk about the Middle Ages, what are we really talking about? Well, I mean, you ask three medievalists here on this panel, you're probably going to get three different answers ah. because there's no, um, you know, we can't always agree on kind of the beginning and the ending. Um, I mean, roughly it's it's a thousand periods of time, uh, a thousand year period of time, sorry, um, starting roughly around 300 or 400 and then winding up in the, uh, 1400 or 1500, something like that. Um, the traditional date has been something like 476 is when the last uh, Roman emperor in the West was deposed, kind of this, starting with this fall of Rome narrative, which is really problematic, um, as, as many scholars have shown recently, and then kind of ending with um, either the, the fall of Constantinople to the, uh, the Ottoman Turks in 1453, perhaps the discovery, the quote-unquote, sorry, discovery of the New World in uh, 1492, um, or, or various other dates. Um, some people say the Black Death, in, in the middle of the 14th century, the 1340s, uh, th late 1340s. So, um, but I think one of the big things that um, Cord pointed out, which I really wanted to emphasize, is that when they talk about the Middle Ages, they say that they're talking about kind of a global period, but they're really oftentimes just talking about Europe. Um, and oftentimes just kind of Northern Europe as well. And that is, is, is really, I think, um, really not shown up in the scholarship, which shows how interconnected, as Cord was saying, how interconnected this this world was that the the Middle Ages really encompassed kind of the Middle East, North Africa, places like that, especially in the later Middle Ages, contacts with China and and further afield than that. Well, when it comes to the Middle Ages, one group comes up a lot. This is Charlie. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon heritage is really a myth in the sense that uh, the Anglo the Ang Anglo's and Saxons uh, originally from small areas in northern Germany came over to England and mixed in with many other cultures from many other places. And also their heritage, going further back in the past, goes back to many far distant places, mainly Indo-European is the one that's most well-known. So what is Anglo-Saxon? It is only uh, a very small sector of one large human family. Eleanor, is Charlie on the mark there? 
Um, I think that Charlie is not far off. Now, there's a large group of us as medievalists who are moving away from using the term Anglo-Saxon altogether, um, because in the first place, it's not really the best term. Um, and unfortunately, when you get a bunch of historians together, one of the things that we really like to do is debate terminology. <laughs> and the thing about the term Anglo-Saxon is that it doesn't really come up in the written record really at all. So I think that we have something like, it's below 20 extant uses of it ever. And when we see people in early medieval England talk about themselves, they call themselves English. And indeed, what this kind of shows us is that the term Anglo-Saxon was almost wholly a term that was brought up in the sort of 19th and 20th centuries to make this kind of imagined white specific culture that theoretically exists in Northern Europe. There's a specific connection between what will become the good, hardworking white Protestant societies that then go on to take over the world. So calling out this idea of a really specific uh, location of a culture that is in England as somehow unique or interesting or very, very important is super problematic because they don't even think of themselves as that way. Um, and it's also really odd because in the medieval period, England wasn't a very important place at all whatsoever. So all the emphasis that gets put on it as a culture is really a reflection of our own desire to kind of build this myth. And it doesn't really have to do with some kind of like really homogenous, tiny group of people, sorry, had, uh, you know, in, in one place. That's not really how the medieval year world works. And it's definitely not how big port cities like London, as Cord was saying, worked either. We definitely have people from all over kind of Europe, North Africa, you know, the Middle East, who show up here in London and uh, where I'm sitting now. So I always say here in London. Um, and this is with regularity. It's not something that would necessarily, you know, raise eyebrows at the time. Well, we got a couple of messages. Andorra wrote on Facebook, being a first-generation American with my extended family back in Denmark, I've long said I am Viking when asked about my heritage. I have several Viking-themed tattoos and used to fly Viking flags outside the house, but lately it feels uncomfortable. I second-guess compliments on my tats and worry about how it's all perceived. And Wes writes, much of my spirituality is tied to Celtic and Druidic roots. Seeing these symbols co-opted is both sad and infuriating. I feel I'm not able to wear the symbols that have deep meanings to me for fear of being branded a white supremacist. Those who are using these symbols for racist gains go against the very foundation of the harmony they represent. Matthew, we've got just about a minute here before the break, but Viking and Crusader imagery has long been popular among white supremacists and neo-Nazis, and this is an area you specialize in. Why are white nationalists drawn to these groups? Yeah, I think it has something to do. I mean, the other kind of element that there that which you didn't mention is is the evocation of the Crusades, mm. and I think those things are all kind of tied together. I think it has a lot to do with this um, this idea of kind of a militant masculinity that these great warriors in the past that um, that white supremacists love to try to tie themselves back to, um, and it's really deeply problematic because um, you know as again like as scholars have shown for a really long time, Vikings were uh, prolific travelers. They were from all over the place. Viking was a term that was applied to person it's not like an ethnic um, uh, settle uh, an ethnic term in any way so um, that's not to say that people can't talk about these things but you know they're playing off these these myths which I think are, are really deeply troubling so we're speaking to Matthew Gabriel of Virginia Tech Cord Whitaker of Wellesley College and Eleanor Yanega with the London School of Economics and Political Science coming up we hear the Middle Ages and go straight to well the Knights of the Round Table but what if medieval England was kind of a backwater and the real action was happening along the Silk Road. I'm Jen White. This is 1A from WAMU and NPR. 
I'm Jen White. This is 1A. Last month, far-right Republicans raised eyebrows by calling for a new America First caucus, one that would draw on, quote, Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Many immediately pinged it as a dog whistle, if not a bullhorn, for white nationalists. But why is that? Why is it that white supremacy connects medieval Europe with a pure white heritage, especially when the truth is a lot more complicated, as some of you told us? The Middle Ages often get ruined by people who don't understand it. And um, the latest adoption of medieval themes of battle and knights and warfare and all this stuff by the right-wingers is just one in many people that have tried to misunderstand the Middle Ages. But it's a fascinating period of time. Here to lay down the facts is Matthew Gabriel. He's a professor of medieval studies and the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech. His upcoming book is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. Also with us, Cord Whitaker, an associate professor of English at Wellesley College. He's also the author of Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. And he's a senior consultant on anti-racism strategy at the consulting firm Sagely. And Eleanor Yanega, a guest teacher in women's history at the London School of of Economics and Political Science. She's also the host of the TV series Going Medieval and author of the upcoming book, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. Eleanor, Freedom to Be tweets, hoping to hear something on Native American nations in the medieval ages, African nations in the medieval ages, the subcontinent in the medieval ages, just a wee bit, please. Now, Europe was not the only continent around in the Middle Ages. And Eleanor, I realize this is a huge question, but what was going on outside of medieval Europe? The answer is absolutely tons of things, <laughs> which is the, the long and short of it. Um, so especially in, for example, um, Africa, we see really exciting things like uh, Greater Zimbabwe, which was a really complex kingdom that has some of the best records that we have of anywhere in the medieval period at the time. And it shows us how interconnected Africa was. Um, and we know that Africa was massively important because even though, for example, medieval Europeans um, didn't have a great idea of what was going on there, they knew that it was like a really rich place. And so we see things like the Catalan Atlas that shows us, oh, what you want to do is get to Timbuktu because we know they've got a lot of uh, gold there. They've got great libraries. Um, obviously, on Central and South America, we have, you know, huge and really important empires like the Incas and the Mayans and the Aztecs who are doing extraordinarily advanced, you know, forms of uh, mathematics, have great astrology going on, have really complex and interconnected dynasties, um, which are really, really interesting. Um, in North America, which I know less about, unfortunately, there's also super interesting and complex things going on. And one of the things I do know about and am really interested in, for example, are the trade routes between um, Northern Americans and uh, Northern Asians. So there's a lot of trade back and forth across the Bering Strait. And we will see things like, uh, for example, dentalium shells, which originate from uh, where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, all the way at court in Beijing and this sort of thing. So, you know, we will see real trade goods structures that are going back and forth between Asia and Native Americans. And it's just not something that people generally talk about in the first place because it doesn't suit our particular narrative about, you know, white people coming to the Americas and finally, you know, culturizing it and civilizing it, quote unquote. Um, and also sometimes just because, you know, from a historical standpoint, if we're specifically talking about Native American culture in Northern Europe, you know, we work from written documents. And if you don't have a literate culture, then it's harder for us to work with it. So a lot of the time we just kind of ignore it. Um, and that's where archaeologists come in, thankfully. But they've shown 
over and over again that there are absolutely thriving and fascinating societies in all of these places that get ignored in order to talk about, you know, a battle that someone had on a rainy island once. And it's a real shame, you know. Cord, why do we know so much less about what, say, Africa was up to from the 5th to the 15th century? Is it is it that historians know this, medieval scholars know this, but just the general American public don't know? Well, you know, I think that's becoming more and more the case as more scholars do turn to the global Middle Ages, where you do really consider what was going on in Africa and Asia and Europe uh, together as, you know, as a, a continuous and interconnected world. But that is not the tradition of scholarship on the Middle Ages in the West. So you really do have to go back to the Enlightenment period, back to the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, when the idea of the Middle Ages was being constructed and used in order to prop up European imperialist projects, uh, such that, you know, European imperial education in colonized places in Africa, in Asia, and in the Americas was designed to, um, designed to assert that the only history that existed before modernity was European history and back beyond that classical antique history from which European history uh, came about um, and that you know that was the only history that mattered um, so in doing so you really did kind of wipe out the you know the historical pasts of the of what was going on contemporaneously in Asia and Africa, which in the Middle Ages for Europeans were the only other two known continents. Um, and uh, so once you do that, you know, when you get into modernity, then you, you do end up with a situation where both scholars and the general public generally know less about what's going on outside of Europe in the Middle Ages. <laughs> There have been fewer people doing the research, and the people who have been doing the research have, until recently, been far less rewarded than people doing research on the Middle Ages in Europe. We got this message from Stephanie on Facebook who says, I remember joining a Norse Celtic type group on Facebook a few years ago because I have a lot of Scandinavian and Celtic ancestry. I was looking for cool recipes and artwork. I remember seeing a post, share your ancestry DNA results. When I clicked it, it was full of white purity messages with users bearing neo-Nazi profile images. It was such a dumpster fire of racism, I couldn't leave the group fast enough. And Sean writes on Facebook, as someone of Nordic and Celtic heritage, it breaks my heart that those symbols of my forebears and those of Germanic and Roman descent are being perverted to such awful causes. I wish I could celebrate my history with runic and pagan symbols, but their modern usage is so intertwined with white nationalism and sketchy black metal that they've become corrupted. Uh, Matthew, I I'm curious, you know, as, as someone who specializes in, in the Crusades and, and religious violence, you know, how accurate are some of the modern day portrayals we see today? Yeah, I think that's... Um well, I mean, I think it kind of depends, you know, and I, I think that one of the one of the problems that we're we're dealing with is, um, you know, there's a running joke among medievalists that, you know, if you ask them what their favorite century is, they'll say different things like the ninth century, tenth century, eleventh century, or something like that. If you ask them what the century is that they hate, that they uh, 
like the least or they hate the most, they'll say the 19th century, because there's a tradition of kind of scholarship that medievalists have to kind of wade through in order to get to, um, you know, what the Middle Ages actually were. And the reason I say that here is because there's so much of... Um, the historiography, the scholarship, um, the popular conception of things like the Crusades, about the Vikings and stuff like that, which is entwined in European colonialism. Because these projects, a lot of the, the great kind of works, the foundational works, the translations of the primary sources, uh, the editions of the, the manuscripts that were created happened in the 19th century in these European universities at the same time that they were colonizing these places that they were talking about. Um, and so you see, for example, um, you know, when uh, in 1917, when Jerusalem was captured by a British expeditionary force, like there were images all over British media of Richard the Lionhearted with the, with, uh, the text saying, like, finally, my dream of the crusade fulfilled or something like that. Um, so these things are, are deeply entangled. And what these guys wanted to portray was that there was this kind of existential war that existed between kind of Europe slash Christianity slash white civilization, as they defined it, and, you know, everybody else, um, Islam or, um, you know, kind of uh, non-white peoples, etc. And that's just absolutely not the case. I mean, you, there's, there's plenty of evidence that these people did indeed kill one another. Um, they justified it through texts, um, through um, all sorts of things like that. But at the same time, Time, there were periods of peace. They traded with one another. They um, engaged with one another. They they cooperated in many ways. They lived amongst each other. Um, you know, not just uh, across kind of religious difference, but what we would consider race as well. So the, the the messiness of the period is really kind of what's more real than kind of this very simplified kind of clash of civilizations narratives that so many people think characterize the period such as the, the Crusades. Well, Linda tweets, I'm a pantheist whose focus is the British Isles, Irish, Scottish, British. My religion stresses scholarship, the use of Norse and runes as symbols of white supremacy is as offensive as the use of the cross by the Ku Klux Klan. Court, when was the championing of the Middle Ages first explicitly connected to white supremacy? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. But you just mentioned the Ku Klux Klan, and I, I quickly want to say, you know, I think they are probably one of the most, uh, most well-known, at least in, in popular culture, one of the most well-known examples of white supremacist medievalism. And, you know, it's really quite an interesting thing that they... Um, their first iteration in uh, during Reconstruction after the Civil War uh, was in many ways not as medievalist as their second iteration, which occurs in the early 20th century and really follows on the heels of the popular of the popularity of the um, of the novel the um, the Klansman, which of course spurned the film um, The Birth of a Nation. And it's right around that time that you see folks associated with the Klan um, explicitly stating that they that they take their origins from the uh, from the old from the chivalric knights of old Scotland. Mm. Right. So there, we have a really strong push toward white supremacist medievalism in the early twentieth century. Which, um, which aligns very well, actually, with the building of many of the white supremacist monuments that, that have been so, um, 
you know, that, that have been such an issue uh, in the United States over the past several years. So there have been numerous iterations of white supremacist medievalism, like I said, going back into the educational programs of, um, you know, of the, the European empires. Um, but I think for many of us um, functioning now, and those of us who strive to do anti-racist work now, um, that early 20th century moment when white supremacist medievalism takes on, you know, takes on a new turn, becomes, you know, very, very salient and visible in, um, in modern American culture is really a key moment. We're talking to three medieval historians, Cord Whitaker of Wellesley College, Eleanor Yanega of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and Matthew Gabriel of Virginia Tech. And we also want to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page, tweet us at 1A, or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. Here's a message we got from Sean in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, via Vox Pop. As a former member of the Society for Creative Anachronism and a current practitioner of historic European martial arts, I don't really have a question on the Middle Ages. I know rather a bit about them. I do wonder, why are we so bad at teaching them? I can't count the number of times I've had to counter the myth of the knight who couldn't get up once knocked off his horse or 20-pound swords or, or anything else. I mean, you know, people are surprised to find out, like, chainmail is one of the better armors you could have. It was around for most of 2,000 years, and spears are awesome and things like that. Uh, so why are we why are we bad at uh, teaching them? That's my question. Eleanor, can you take a whack at that? Oh gosh, I have a lot of things to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the reasons I think we're bad at teaching it is, um, you know, expressly it's it's kind of imperialism and it's racism. And one of the reasons we don't teach. Uh, European medieval history in the same way that we teach other things is because it's a period of time where in comparison to the rest of the world, um, Europe's just not that important, right? So we go from the bit where, you know, there's Rome and it's pretty big and impressive and it spans most of, you know, the Mediterranean. So, oh, okay, Europe is good and it's controlling things and it's got a big slave society and it's, you know, doing all kinds of imperialist wars. That's good. Then, oh, it looks like Europe is retreated into itself in a, in a way. It's not dominating other places as much. A lot of the wars are more kind of inter-between European uh, groups as opposed to what is seen as quote-unquote right, which is white people fighting brown people. Um, and then you fast forward to the early modern period where Europe gets uh, really into imperialism and colonialism, goes out and dominates the rest of the world. So we skip over the part where... Europe is just kind of doing its own thing and it's on its own because it's not an example of when, you know, Europe is a theoretical world leader. And it's also not this example that is easy to teach because when you don't have like one kind of huge empire that you can just say, here's the history of this, it means that you have to break down and teach specific things about specific places. So, you know, for example, I am an expert in Bohemia, which is now in the, the Czech Republic. And that's not something that has a culture that is similar to, for example, Spain. And it's it's definitely not the same as, for example, England. You know, these are all really disparate places that have different cultures and different concerns going on at the same time. So there is an issue of complexity, but also there's just this fact that one of the things that holds you back is that, well, yeah, if you want to explain Europe in the Middle Ages, you have to admit that maybe Europe isn't the most important place all the time. 
Well, we got this tweet from Colin who says, thank you for helping me confront my own academic biases. As a scholar of literature, I have thought about the Middle Ages solely in terms of Europe and the British Isles. I look forward to expanding my knowledge and teaching this broader global medieval context. Matthew, is you know what Eleanor laid out for us there and the relative lack of scholarship partially to blame for why so many people associate the Middle Ages with whiteness now? Yeah, I think so. And and I don't I don't think it's necessarily a lack of scholarship. It's that it's a, a lack of awareness of the scholarship that's being done outside the English speaking world. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that that's very difficult, frankly, about being a medievalist is you have to know a lot of languages because it's not just stuff that's being produced uh, or, you know, research that's being produced in the US or in the UK or places like that. I mean, y- you know, you want to know about uh, Spanish history, uh, French history, German history. Um, you know, Dutch history, Bohemian history, Italian history, and stuff like that. And there's been a long, hist- uh, you know, a long uh, tradition of scholarship in all of those places on these things. But a lot of it's not been translated into English, and you need to know the languages to do that. Um, so it's much easier when you're teaching it sometimes to just rely on kind of what you can gather very quickly, and that's a very understandable impulse. But it does leave out these places, and it tends to homogenize and make things seem the same when they're really not, and they're really very, very different. We're talking medieval history with Matthew Gabriel, the professor of medieval studies and the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech, Cord Whitaker, an associate professor of English at Wellesley College, and Eleanor Yanega, a guest teacher in women's history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm Jen White. We'll hear more from you and our guests in a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation on medieval history and how it's been co-opted by white supremacists throughout the centuries. Our guests are Matthew Gabriel. He's a professor of medieval studies and the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech. His upcoming book is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. Also with us, Cord Whitaker, an associate professor of English at Wellesley College. He's also the author of Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. And he's a senior consultant on anti-racism strategy at the Consulting firm Sagely. Also with us, Eleanor Yanega, a guest teacher in women's history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's also the host of the TV series Going Medieval and author of the upcoming book, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. I want to play a pair of messages from Lyndon and Annette on the subject of white people in medieval Europe. Let's listen. To try to say that everybody was white, it, it just couldn't be possible if you look at trade, if you look at the invasion of the Danes and how that impacted their society, etc., the Republican Party in this country is revealing their lack of knowledge of the history of the migratory tribal um, effects on the Middle Ages. They were a diverse group of tribes from all over, from the Celts, the Vikings, um, all over Europe, the Jews, the Frisians, they all settled Um, And they are actually quite diverse. Matthew, you touched on this earlier, but explain a little bit more about the diversity that was present in medieval Europe. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the the thing that we we oftentimes forget is because we think of the middle middle the medieval ages, the Middle Ages, as um, kind of distinct from uh, Roman antiquity, the period that kind of came before it, is that um, that it, it represents some sort of sharp break. But if we think about kind of the Roman world, and if you can kind of picture the the map of Rome that you've seen, kind of maybe in a textbook or or you know on the internet or something like that, it's a pan Mediterranean place, right? And the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, what we now think of as kind of modern Turkey or, um, you know, the, the Roman province of Palestine or Syria or something like that, were incredibly important places. They don't stop being that, Egypt as well, they don't stop being that in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, people think of those places as within their worldview. And so the idea that um, people stopped moving across the Mediterranean, there's, there's, a, there's a reason within the scholarship we tend to, uh, to think about that. Um, but I think that that's deeply problem uh, problematic now. So, so you had people moving both because of trade, because of uh, religious pilgrimage, uh, because of political connections and things like that, all across the Mediterranean world from places all across the, the Middle East, North Africa, and even probably um, likely some, some trans-Saharan trade as well. And so, you know, that, that you're going to see people who look very different based upon kind of uh, phenotype, skin phenotype, right? But also who speak different languages, who practice um, different uh, religious traditions. And um, and all sorts of things. Any almost anywhere you go. I mean, that might not be true in smaller rural villages, but certainly in kind of larger, um, you know, village settlements or what we would call cities or something like that. Eleanor, was whiteness as we think about it today even a thing in the Middle Ages? I mean, the conception of whiteness as a whole is a very new one. Um, we do see, say that you start to see kind of conceptions of what we would call racism come in in the medieval period. So, for example, you would have uh, discussions often about uh, Jewish people, for example, where Christians would talk about, you know, their blood being specifically different. You know, things that you and I would look at now and say, yeah, that, that looks a lot kind of like these, you know, you know, quote unquote, eugenic or scientific um, justifications for racism that we use now. Um, but the idea of being white isn't something that Europeans had at the time. And it's more common, for example, if they were going to think in a sort of us versus them way, uh, they would think of themselves as Christians. And so oftentimes what you see when medieval Europeans, for example, um, are being, you know, kind of xenophobic or frightened of other people is they'll usually talk about themselves as Christians as opposed to Jewish people or uh, Muslim people who they have all kinds of uh, varying names for Muslim people. Um, and then also there's a sort of amorphous pagans that they use. So the term paganism often comes up when they're sort of confused about what religion they see. So for example, oftentimes if you see people who are traveling on the Silk Road, when they come into contact with Buddhists, they call them pagans because that's all they can really, you know, understand and how to put it into their terms. So there's sort of like the monotheistic um, Abrahamic religions, and then there's everybody else who are these pagans. And for them, that's the huge kind of dividing line. Within that, there is, of course, more, and it grows later on, but that's the really big one for them. Well, let's listen to this message we got from Sabrina in Georgia. As a Black German woman who speaks German as well as Swedish and a lot of these Norse languages... I'm wondering how best to take back the co-option of the symbols of my heritage from white nationalists. Cord, what would you say to Sabrina? 
Sure. Um, you know, this is a this is a common theme, right? That we've heard now from from several of the uh, for several of the folks who sent in their questions and comments that they have attachments to medieval history that uh, it's really hurtful that these have been co-opted by white supremacists. Um, what I would say to Sabrina and to others who feel the same way is that we have to pay attention to why white supremacists use the Middle Ages and, and how they use it rhetorically. And one of the things they do is they call on the idea of chivalry, the idea of defending the defenseless. Um, and they, they use that to, to posit themselves as heroic. Right, so they're really calling on a heroic, chivalric Middle Ages. When you look at a lot of the um, white supremacist medievalism that appears on message boards such as Reddit, what you see is a, the word defend, defend, defend comes up all the time. What those of us who argue for the truth of a more diverse Middle Ages, a Middle Ages that people who, you know, that people who in modernity, you know, don't occupy a European subject position, um, you know, so the diversity of people in modernity too, also have the right to call on medieval history and to lay a claim to medieval history. One of the best things we can do is start, you know, taking some of that language of defense from them and start talking about the fact that we are defending the true, that we are defending some of the truths of the Middle Ages. The fact that as much as the world is diverse now, the world was diverse then. There certainly were historical differences. We don't ever want to gloss over those. Right? One of the major things I do is I talk about racism in modernity or racial ideology in modernity, whereas in the Middle Ages I talk about race thinking. And race thinking for medieval people, you know, was about the ways that skin color or other parts of your appearance could make you, you know, could make it easier to tell if you might be different religiously. They could make it easier to tell, not, not hard and fast, but easier to discern that maybe you're Muslim and on the other side in the Crusades, right? When we start when we start looking at race as something that has had different iterations in different historical contexts, but has also had some elements that run clear through the Middle Ages and into modernity, then we can start talking in terms of nuance. And if, if those of us who look at a global Middle Ages, who look at a Middle Ages that black people and Asian people and Muslim people can lay claim to just as much as European people can, then we can use this language of defending the real Middle Ages and do it with much more nuance and historical accuracy than do white supremacists who do it. We're talking to three medieval historians, Cord Whitaker of Wellesley College, Eleanor Yanega of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and Matthew Gabriel of Virginia Tech. 
We got this email from Jay who says, In Norman, Oklahoma, one of our biggest events is the annual Medieval Fair. We had over 300,000 attendees before the pandemic. What seems to be so attractive to this time period, and, and how does that contribute to the misconceptions about them? And David tweets, There have been three or four listeners who want to protect runes from white supremacists, but are clearly equally tied up in their own myths. I try to be gentle with complicating such myths, but we still have to disrupt them. Nice folks, clearly my kind of people, but I think reliant on nostalgia is dangerous. Matthew, what is it what is it about nostalgia and that that's that captures this period and and people's feelings about it and how does it make it yeah. difficult to untangle some of of the misunderstanding? So, yeah, I think that's great and I want to go back to something that that Eleanor mentioned because I think it was really spot on right at the the kind of outset is that this the, the Middle Ages becomes in the popular imagination, because it's this period of kind of darkness where like nothing happened, people think that there's no sources, um, you know, in the general conceptualization. There's there's pop culture elements we have to kind of wade through, you know, the, the stuff that you, you played at the beginning about like Robin Hood and Monty Python, but also things like Game of Thrones, like this fantasy element. That the Middle Ages becomes this period that we can kind of press our concerns on. It's a way of distancing um, uh, things that we don't like from our own period. So you can say that, the, you know, this practice is positively medieval and we, we associate it with, with bad or awful or something like that. But at the same time, it can become this period of kind of romance and, and, and excitement, right? This, this, this um, conceptualization of chivalry, right? Where, um, you know, this really romanticized conceptualization of chivalry um, where things can, you know, men can act like men and women can be damsels in distress and, and stuff like that. So it can be kind of good or bad kind of depending because there's no kind of object there in the popular imagination that, um, that people can, um, can, can, can kind of play against it. And I think that's why the work of medievalists um, and historians generally, or scholars who work on the past, I should say, is so important. Because when somebody says something is simple, like they're selling something. And you got to ask what they're selling. It's a contemporary politics or a cultural or a religious um, you know, message. Because the past is messy, because it involved human beings. It was really complex. And the, that complexity, I think, is really what needs to be brought out. It's not that we can kind of reclaim the Middle Ages. It's that we have to understand that it was bad and good at the same time, oftentimes in the same ways, because it was filled with human beings who are bad and good and complex in all those kinds of ways. Well, Kimberly emailed us this. Could you please ask the panelists to recommend some reading on this subject, specifically for high school teenagers? Eleanor, any guidance there? Um, well, I uh, here's an opportunity to plug my own book. Um, in June, I have a, a book that is coming out on Icon Press uh, called The Middle Ages, A Graphic Guide. And it's a really good introductory text. So the idea is, you know, it's for teenagers and adults who don't know anything about the medieval period and want to get up to speed very, very quickly on it. And I think that it's quite good for that. Um, for unfortunately, it's it's one of these things where again, because of the way that our society has treated medieval history, there isn't a whole lot floating around for teenage audiences specifically, which I think is a real shame. So we're kind of like left with a sort of like a Disneyfication or you know Renaissance fair idea of what the medieval period is, and we kind of need to get down to the nitty gritty of that. Um, I will also say that uh, both uh, well, Cord's book is really really excellent, and I recommend it all the time, and I find 
online often with um, my first year students. It resonates with them very closely. Um, I also think that for these topics, a great book for anyone um, is called Who's Middle Ages? And it really goes through a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. Um, and of course, uh, check out um, Matthew and David's forthcoming uh, book as well. These are all, you know, we're all doing a lot of work right now where we're explicitly and specifically trying to get in between this um, because it is really a gap for, you know, the larger public, unfortunately. We've got a lot of scholars talking to a lot of scholars about this, but it doesn't seem to have that kind of breakthrough appeal to the larger audience. And, you know, it's one of these things that we actually have to work at doing now. Well, I want to make sure to mention again that Cord's book is Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. And Matthew's upcoming book is The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. And we'll tweet all of that out at 1A. Uh, Cord, I, I want to hear from you about what you think is lost when we think about the Middle Ages and history in general in, in these oversimplified ways. That's a great question. I mean, I think the, the, the beautiful complexity of human experience is what gets lost. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, in addition to looking at historical archives, in addition to, you know, looking at parliamentary documents and that sort of thing, one of the reasons I also spend a lot of time with uh, late medieval popular writing, romances, which, you know, which are roughly akin to our modern novels or short stories, I, I spend a lot of time with those because the the complexity of human feeling and the way that those feelings get bound up with the politics and, and geopolitics and cultural conflicts of the time um, and just how you know, sometimes crazy or sensational or sometimes just mundane those things can be, that allows us to connect with medieval people as every bit as human as we are now. That's Cord Whitaker. He's an associate professor of English at Wellesley College. He's also the author of Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. Also with us, Matthew Gabriel, a professor of medieval studies and the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech. His upcoming book is called The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. And Eleanor Yanega, a guest teacher in women's history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her upcoming book is The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A. One